This is Albert Breer from the MMQB.com, and you're listening to Play Like a Jet. From Joe Namath's Super Bowl Guarantee. I got news for you, buddy. We're going to win the game, I guarantee you. To Ryan Fitzpatrick's contract holdout. Ryan Fitzpatrick, he has not shown up at camp. Where are we with Fitz versus the Jets? And everything in between. They froze. It appeared that Marino was going to try and stop the clock instead. He connected for the fourth time with Mark Ingram. And it is juggled and caught by Jumbo this is Play Like a Jet, your weekly look back at some of the best. The New York Jets are the world champions. They have upset the Baltimore Colts and beat them handily here today. And worse. Vince Wilfork is going to throw Brandon Moore back into his quarterback. He's going to fumble the football. Mark Sanchez not expecting it. And it was the backside of Brandon Moore to knock the ball out. Moments in New York Jets history. So get ready to hop in your DeLorean and take a trip back in time. Are you telling me you built a time machine out of a DeLorean? For an in-depth look at the most memorable games, seasons, players, and events in the history of gangrene, it's time to play like a Jet. Play like a Jet? What does that mean? With your hosts, Scott Mason and Big John Sparapolis. Welcome to Play Like a Jet, your weekly look back at the biggest moments in New York Jets history. My name is Scott Mason, alongside my tag team partner, six foot two, two hundred sixty-five pounds. And if he had been in the Royal Rumble, we'd be looking at a man headed for WrestleMania right about now. Big John Spropolis. John, what's been going on, buddy? It's been a while. Scotty, it has been a while. Many great things have happened since the last time we talked. The Jets got a new uh, head coach. Jamal Adams was the MVP of the Pro Bowl. Things are looking up. Things are looking up for everybody but the Patriots mascot, apparently, right? (laughs) Scotty, I have on, um, from a close source, uh, Jamal Adams was practicing to be in the Royal Rumble, and he speared the uh, Patriots mascot. Yeah, he's trying to be the next big WWE star, which I joked about last week on the podcast. I think that whole situation is absurd, and I've talked about it enough, so I'm going to move on from that, but you're right. A lot of stuff has happened since the last time we talked. I know we've both been sick at different points. How are you feeling now? You all right? Yes, Scotty. I'm just about back to being 100%. uh, Thanks for asking. Glad to hear it, John, because now you can celebrate all the moves that the Jets have made, including getting Greg Williams, which I know you were a big fan of. In fact, I believe you celebrated in a unique way at your office down in the DFW area, right? Yes, Scotty, that's correct. Uh, The one and only way that I do how, uh, by putting bounties on everybody at the office. (laughs) In honor of Greg Williams, a little bounty gate going on in the DFW area. Let me know who ends up collecting the bounty. I got my money on that guy with the corner office who's very quiet, doesn't say much, but I think that there's some sort of deep-seated anger in him, so I think he's going to be the one collecting the bounty. Yeah, Scotty, sounds like you're talking about Bob. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, Bob is definitely a secret killer. There's something going on there. Those eyes are scary to me, and I think he's going to be the one collecting the bounty. I'll tell you this, though. I'm kind of curious if this bounty stuff went on back in the 70s and 80s. I suspect it did, and that Greg Williams was just the only one to get caught. And so maybe that'll be one of the questions we ask our guests this week and the next bunch of weeks, because we have got, get this, John, Jets legend, one of the greatest players in the history of the franchise, Number 85, Wesley Walker, to talk about his entire career and his run with the Jets. 
Really excited to be talking to Wesley Walker this week. This is something that's been in the works for a really long time. And so coming back out of the gate, Super Bowl weekend, I thought this was the appropriate time to unleash this series. I could not be more excited. John, how pumped are you? Scotty, uh, from 0 to 10, I'm at a 12. All right, so let's do it. Let's go talk to Wesley Walker. You ready? Uh, Jeez, Scotty, I'd love to, but... uh. The timing isn't quite right for me, though. What do you mean? Well, with the uh, big game, the Super Bowl, coming up this weekend, I'm starting to plan my big party, and it uh, devolves around getting a lot of food, having a nice spread, because I got a special guest coming over. Ooh, a special guest. You're not going to tell me who it is, are you? Uh, Scotty, not. Not before the break here, no. (laughs) Of course. Keep me hanging. All right, John, you go do what you got to do for the Super Bowl. I'll talk to Wesley Walker, and we'll meet back here. How's that? Scotty, as always, sounds like a plan. Talk to you soon. And now it's time for the main event. We're going to be doing something different this week. We're going to do a comprehensive look at the career of one of the legendary Jets, one of the greatest players to ever put on the green and white. He was a second-round pick out of Cal, the 33rd pick overall in 1977. And amazingly, he played 13 seasons for the Jets. He's in their ring of honor. He's on the all-time team, one of the greatest players to ever play for the organization. Wesley Walker, thank you so much for coming on. How are you? I'm doing fine. I'm glad to be here, and I'm glad to be able to sit down and at least talk to you. I know we've been trying to nail down a time and a place to sit down and have a chit-chat, and and finally it's here. That's right. we got a lot to talk about because, as I said, you had a 13-year career. But before we get into your career, why don't you talk a little bit about what you're up to these days? Well, you know, I taught for about 25 years. Uh, I started out, uh, well, when I, you know, I knew I was going to at some point in time, you know, football is, and especially playing professionally, it's not a career. It's something, I look at it as a career where it's something you do the rest of your life and continue on when you get older, just as I am. And so um, I was fortunate enough to graduate and I went on to get my master's degree in, in education. And I fell into education, and I started teaching. And I, I started um, in special ed with with the kids, and but I always wanted to be in in physical education because uh, it was very important to me as an athlete. And and if you could teach the kids, and for me, education was the first and foremost for me to help me with my athletic career. And I just wanted to lend that to uh, the youth and how important it is. And and I knew once I finished playing that I needed something to really fall back on. But if it wasn't for my uh, mindset, my parents were my role models, and they taught me the value of an education. I was able to blend the two together, athletics and education. Consequently, I had really good grades, and uh, I had a good athletic ability. And I was very fortunate to earn a scholarship. And because of my athletics and the fact that I was a good student, uh, I earned a scholarship. I could have went to any school in the country. So when I uh, finished playing uh, with the Jets, uh, I wanted to get into teaching to help uh, student athletes and hopefully uh, try to stir kids in the right direction. Because a lot of athletes, um, uh, you may have that ability, but you don't do well in school, and you kind of do a, a discredit to yourself. And 
and and when I know that using your ability that you can be you know get much further ahead of the game if you're able to do the right thing when it comes to your education. And so I was able to do that. And uh, once I, uh, you know, I, I, I knew I was retiring. I was in a master's program. Uh, and the year I, uh, I, I decided to retire, I received my master's degree, went right into teaching. And I've been teaching ever since. And like I said, I started in special ed, but I wanted to be in phys ed. I've been in the classroom teaching health and history and social studies, but I wanted to be strictly in phys ed. And uh, I finally, I, I, uh, when I first started teaching, I was in the Queens area. Uh, I started in probably five, six different schools. Um, I was at Forest Hills, Ozone Park, and Elmhurst, and Edison, just all over. And uh, until I, because uh, back uh, when I first started teaching, all you needed was your degree. But now you have to go through certain certifications and take a test and I finally got my certification, and I went out for my first interview. It happened to be out in Kings Park, and it was 15 minutes from where I live, and I taught there for the last 16 uh, years until my body just kind of gave out on me. And I, I do miss the kids, and, and, and like I said, I just try to lend my endpoint, uh, input as far as how important education was to me as an athlete, and hopefully you could just carry that on, and the youth will... Uh, kind of listen and hopefully take note and and try to, uh, you know, educate themselves. And hopefully when they get educated, they can educate other people. And and, and since I've been retired, I've had um, several surgeries, and most of my surgeries has come uh, after my career, and that's been somewhat a shock to me because certain things have happened to me that I don't quite understand, but just because this game is so brutal, uh, it takes its toll on your body. I never thought I'd feel the way I do now. And so uh, in 2014, uh, I had my shoulder operated on, and this was my second uh, operation, uh, you know, because I had both shoulders done. And then I had a major, major um, back six-level fusion done, L2, 3, 4, 5, and S1 done. And, and then my Achilles in December, all in the span of about six months, so my body was just given out. So I ended up going out on a disability, and um, my my girl and I have a companionship aid uh, business where we work with the elderly, uh, we work with people uh, that have handicaps, uh, even in hospice, and I volunteer my time uh, to be with uh, people, which I, I, I love people. And uh, right now I have a couple of people that I work with, clients, and I actually work with a, a guy that's going to be 102 and in December, and he has dementia. And, and with what's happening with uh, the players now with dementia, with Lou Gehrig's disease and Parkinson's, and uh, and I have some of my friends who, who who have come up with this that I've played against or played with, and it's very disheartening. So when I work with the elderly or the handicapped or somebody that's had a stroke, and I've had some of my teammates that have strokes and you know, you kind of relate to people. So if I can bring some joy uh, to some people, uh, just to, whether it's just making them smile or laugh, uh, that gives me pleasure too. And I hope that uh, one day when I am in a similar situation, I can get the help or the companionship uh, uh, that I need that I'm hopefully giving to other people. While sports can bring us so much joy, it can also bring us a lot of unwanted stress. And that stress can make it difficult to concentrate, relax, and get decent sleep. Sunday Scaries was launched in 2017 by two best friends and business partners, Bo Schmidt and Mike Sill. 
They operated a full-service bar with 50 employees and were always exhausted. They tried all kinds of products, but they didn't work. Then they started experimenting with CBD. They loved the effects and regained control of their days and nights, but they wanted better CBD products. So what they did for themselves was specially formulate CBD gummies with vitamins D3 and B12 that were super consumable, easy to take on the go, and effective. Long story short, their specially formulated CBD products and vitamins helped relieve the overwhelming angst they felt on a daily basis. So in July 2017, they named the company Sunday Scaries and began sharing their products with friends and launched their online store at sundayscaries.com. With tens of thousands of customers, monthly subscribers, and a 100% money-back guarantee, Sunday Scaries has always been on a mission to transform a worrisome nation into a chill one. And right now, we have a bonus for you. Get 25% off all products at sundayscaries.com when you use the code OVERTIME. Again, 25% off all products at sundayscaries.com when you use the code OVERTIME. This is the Overtime Podcast Network. You've been giving people a lot of things to smile about for a really long time. Now, it's a case of doing it for older people. But back when you were younger, it was for football fans everywhere. And that really started on a national stage at Cal. You said you got the scholarship offer from pretty much everywhere. Did you pick Cal mostly because it was just close to home? No, to be honest with you, I, I told, I told uh, USC, first of all, I told UCLA I was coming I, I played a little bit running back. Uh, UCLA was running the wishbone at the time, wanted me to come be one of the halfbacks, and I told them I was coming. Then I went over to SC, you know, because it's in the local uh, neighborhood. And it's funny, Lynn Swan had recruited me. And they also had a receiver there, John McKay Jr. John McKay was the coach at the time. And I didn't really want to get lost in the shovel. I wanted that opportunity to play right away as a freshman. They had just made a new rule. I went all over the country, you know, looking at different schools, but I really didn't want to go too far away. And I remember the Cal coaches wanted me to come up for their blue chips where they had all their blue chip athletes coming in at one time. And they had, I forget at the time what had happened, but my my parents thought they had not represented themselves properly or lied to me in a certain situation. I forgot exactly why. So I decided not to take the trip. And I was also uh, a, a good track runner, and I was, you know, my senior year, I was in my in my track season, I'm at practice, and one of the recruiters and coach, his name was Ron Hudson, he was a wide receiver coach, made a last-ditch effort to try to get me just to come visit the school, and he had made this scrapbook of me, and he met me after practice and just pleaded with me, could I just come up for a visit? So I ended up going up there, and, and it's funny, too, because one of my rivals, uh, I went to a school in Los Angeles called Carson, and one of my rival schools was uh, was Banning High School, where Freeman McNeil went, and also Vince Ferragamo, who was a great quarterback who got drafted by the Rams, and his brother was the head coach there. And um, um, I was, um, you know, highly, you know, childhood athlete, and, and, and I've just been surrounded by a lot of, uh, just a lot of great athletes, and uh, I was just very fortunate just to be in a situation where I've had success and 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 and, and, and being recruited, and like I said, with, with the Cal coaches, I felt they were lying to me, but he made a last-ditch effort to get me up there, so I, I went up there uh, out of courtesy, 
and I fell in love with it. And I was, and I say this all the time, I was like a black hippie growing up. <laughs> I was never prejudiced. I never saw black and white. And Berkeley just fit my theme of things. I thought I was going to be the next uh, Jimi Hendrix. You know, I played guitar, <laughs> I was left-handed. And I was just a free spirit, and, and it fit my personality. And the um, what I fell in love with was the, the school itself, the campus, and the people, and the fact that it was education-oriented, and education was first and foremost, and uh, academics was the main priority. So that was the real reason I chose the University of California. And I couldn't have made a better choice. I thought I'd never leave that area, but here I am in New York. But I have nothing but good things to say about Northern California, and it's my favorite, favorite place in the world to travel to, especially to go to San Francisco and look at the Golden Gate Bridge and, and up in Napa Cali, uh, in the Napa area where I used to have a, a couple of residencies, and uh, I just love the Northern California area. And um, man, I don't know how long ago it was, uh, because I, I got inducted in, in uh, the Hall of Fame there, and, and I'm glad to be able to take my kids and to show them the inductions, and I, I had no idea Marshawn Lynch and went to Cal to Deshaun Jackson. I'm looking at the names on the board, and I'm like, man, I you know I don't follow football if I don't know these guys ever <laughs> attended Cal. But, yeah, I'm just glad to just to be a part of uh, being in the Hall of Fame or, or just be related to the fact that I went to a good academic school. You did well academically, but you did great on the football field, too. You set a bunch of receiving records, and you were an All-American. You caught 86 passes for 2,206 yards and 22 touchdowns over the course of four seasons, and you established yourself as one of the best deep threats in the country, averaging 25.7 yards per catch. But amazingly, and a lot of people at the time didn't know this, you did all of this despite being legally blind in one eye. So I've got to ask you about that. How were you able to be that good and still have half of the field kind of cut off from your vision? Well, I think uh, a lot of it's, um, you know, I always um, thank God for giving me the ability and some things I just don't quite understand. Uh, Most people didn't know that I was blind. The Jets didn't even know when they drafted me at the time. They never really gave me an eye test. Um, um, I've had to deal with it since I was a youngster. I know it scared the uh, heck out of my mom. I used to play baseball, and that was my first love, and I got hit in the eye a couple of times, and I never even thought about wearing goggles or glass or some type of eye protector. Heaven forbid if something did happen to my good eye, I'd be in trouble. Uh, But one of the things that weird about, even though I couldn't see out of the eye, I, I was aware of objects. I had peripheral vision, aware of objects, and that's the only thing I can say. Maybe that's why, but you'd have to ask God that one. But a lot of it, it, it takes, uh, and I think the fact that I was born with it, I was able to adjust to certain things. And you also have to work at your craft. And I, I did the little things. You know, uh, when you talk about receiving, there are things that you have to be able to adjust to, getting your head around, getting your eyes around to focus on the football, to concentrate, use your hands. You know, there are things that you have to work on, and it's the little things that uh, make you uh, a little bit better and set you apart from a lot of different people, but the work ethic that you have to and the t- determination, and, uh, and I've been able to use that as, as a motivational tool also because, hey, there are people uh, in uh, that played on the National Football League or in sports in general, 
and there's a lot of things that you don't know about people, and it, whether it's a handicap or some disability, and you were able to put that aside and work on those things. And the fact that I think I was born that way, uh, I was able to adjust to it. But uh, it was a shock for the Jets when I got drafted by them because the owner certainly didn't know. The Jets didn't know. And I never had to read an eye chart until I got to the Jets. And it's kind of funny. But now um, uh, they evaluate players by bringing you to a combine where they didn't have that before. And um, uh, they drafted myself and this guy Marvin Powell who had loose knees uh, in 77, and the owner was pretty pissed off. He, you know, he had just drafted a big tackle with loose knees, and he's got a, a receiver that, you know, and my, I, my, I got hurt my senior year, so I had major surgery. So they were concerned about my knee. And so not only did I have the knee that he had to worry about, I go read an eye chart, couldn't read an eye chart, and he got a receiver that was blind. So that didn't sit too well with the owner. And they started uh, flying guys for pre-physicals, and teams started getting together that way. That's really the reason the combines got started. I was just going to say, I can't even imagine something like that happening now. If you get a parking ticket, they know about it these days. But the fact that back then, they didn't even know that you were legally blind out of one eye. Although I guess you could say as a Jets fan... It's probably better that they didn't know because you said Marvin Powell had the knees and you had the eye, and you guys ended up being two of the greatest players in the history of the franchise. But I want to ask you before we get into actually getting drafted by the Jets, what was that pre-draft process like for you? Because like we said, it's a whole different ball game now. Everybody's under a microscope. But like you just said, they didn't even give you an eye test. You didn't even have to read an eye chart. So what did the process consist of back then? No, the only thing uh, that I remember, uh, you know, they, 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 I know my my senior year, and it, it really bummed me out because I was supposed to be a number one draft choice, and then uh, I hurt my year knee my senior year. Didn't know I was going to get surgery. Didn't even know if I was going to be able to play again. And I was able to, uh, you know, and I ran track, and that's the only thing that I think really kept me in the game was keep me in shape. And even though I didn't have a great track season my senior year. You know, it motivated me to get back, you know, to where I needed to be speed-wise and to work out. But the Jets thought I was still going to go in the, in the first round, and, and most scouts were saying there I was still going to be in the first round. But then I remember uh, one of the uh, scouts with the Jets was saying that uh, I was going to be their number one draft choice until I hurt my knee. And uh, when the drafts did uh, take place, I'm waiting for the call, and you're, you're all excited and 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 not getting that call, and then they and then I remember getting a call saying they're starting the second round, and I was like bummed me out because it's also money, and back then we're not we certainly didn't make the money they're making now, but it does mean a lot to you to be a first round compared to a second round or a third round. You want to be in the first round if if you feel you deserve to be. And uh, I remember New Orleans called said they're starting the second round, and I'm going to be their choice, and I was getting excited because. Um, I played with a guy by the name of Chuck Muncie, and uh, he was with New Orleans at the time, so I was very excited about that. So I'm thinking I'm getting a call, and uh, lo and behold, when I get the call, it's the New York Jets, and so I was really surprised at that. And I was glad of that uh, because it's one of the big multimedia. It's a great place to be. Don't like the cold weather, but <laughs> it's one of the places that I would like to have been 
opposed to being in uh, California. Hey guys, this is Greg Peterson, host of the podcast Hooping with Hoops. Despite the fact that college basketball is in the offseason, it's never too early to get a jump start on taking a look at these teams because there is now 357 of them for the upcoming 2020-2021 college basketball season. I'm going to give you guys a deep dive on every last one of them, keep up with all the transfers in college basketball, and so much more. You are able to subscribe to Hooping with Hoops on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, Tune in or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Overtime Podcast Network. So you wanted to come to New York? You weren't affected at all by the weather? Because I know Jim Kelly had said he desperately wanted to avoid going to the Bills because he didn't want to play in that freezing cold weather. But you being a California kid, that didn't bother you at all? Coming to the Jets opposed to going to Buffalo are two different things. I don't <laughs> know if true. I could handle that. You know, But it's funny, though, you have the certain areas, you know, whether it be Green Bay or going out to Indianapolis or, you know, uh, you know, they all have their, um, I don't know, uh, good points about them. And, and I always say Buffalo is a real New York team because they're in New York. I mean, we always had to share it with the, uh, either the Mets and then now the Giants. So I felt like we never had our own niche, but I don't care where you really go. I mean, there's some players that, kind of dictate to where they want to go and, 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 and not go into a place that they may not have a shot or they're losing teams. And But there are a lot of great teams out there. It's just you want to create a winning atmosphere. And and and, and when it comes to New York, you look at uh, New York as a whole, you know, if you can make a, a, a name for yourself, you just you just have, it's a multimedia capital. And if you can do well, it, it, you can have a lot of good success opposed to, being in a smaller uh, market, and and so I was glad I was able to do that. But if I'd had my choice, it would probably have been the Raiders or some sort, you know, because I I didn't want to leave California. Maybe someplace warm, anyway. (laughs) (laughs) So being that you were raised in California, did you know anything about the Jets at the time you were drafted? I am glad you asked that. I didn't know anything about the Jets. (laughs) I didn't even know anything about Joe Namath. And Joe Navis is a dear friend of mine, love him to death, but I didn't know about, about him. I didn't know anything about the Jets, and I, I will say this. The only thing I heard that I knew, I remember seeing this tight end, number 88, and he's like my idol, Richard Kasser. I remember seeing him on TV. Just, I remember him just being this big tight end that could run. And then I remember this guy, Eddie Bell, because he, he was this receiver and had white shoes. But that's the uh, that, that's the only thing I knew about the Jets, and it's really funny. And I remember I was running track, and I was at a hotel, and Joe had just gotten traded to the Rams, and they hooked us up together because I was coming to the Jets, and I remember meeting him. But I've been with Joe um, uh, since I've been in New York, and this guy makes you feel so good at home, like he you've known him for years, always respected him. He's always had a good reputation with his team. I'd never heard a bad word about him, always nice. And when I've had the chance to meet him or be with him, I was just with him. He's just a sweetheart, and I have all the utmost respect. And the only thing I feel bad sometimes because I, I always say, uh, when they ask me about quarterbacks, who's the best you've ever been with? And I'll take Kenny O'Brien. I never played with Joe Namath. I'll make a statement with that. But I'll take Kenny O'Brien over Joe Namath. John Elway or Dan Marino together, you know, and then I always say I never played with Joe Navy. Would have loved to, would have loved to play with all those guys, but nobody's going to take what I developed with uh, Kenny O'Brien. And I put uh, Richard Todd in that category also. I never give him enough credit because I just, I, 
I want to be with somebody that's throwing me the ball. I don't care who was back there. You brought up Ken O'Brien, but I wanted to talk to you about Richard Todd first, because as you said, when you got to the Jets, Joe Namath was on his way out. Richard Todd was kind of taking the reins, and that was the situation you walked into in 1977. You were also walking into a situation where there was a brand new head coach. Walt Michaels had been promoted after kind of a disastrous year for Lou Holtz, who went running back to Notre Dame, and Walt Michaels took over, and he took over a team that had been pretty bad the year before. So before we get into the actual season, what were your initial thoughts both on Walt Michaels, your new coach, and the quarterback, Richard Todd, who was going to be the guy that was going to be throwing you the ball? Well, like I said, I didn't know anything uh, about him. And when I got there, I just remember going coming to the mini camp. All I wanted to do was just run my patterns and show them what I could do. And uh, I just wanted to prove that I was the number one draft choice. And uh, like I, I said before, when I first got to training camp, like Bruce Harper thought I was this little scrub guy and uh, until he saw me run the 4-3 in that 40 and wonder who this guy is. And I, I was able to, you know, run my routes and I was getting open. Richard Todd's throwing me the ball. And all I knew about him is that uh, he went to Alabama. And I'll never forget this. Uh, we played Alabama like Cal of my freshman year. I think Richard Todd was the third-string quarterback. And we got rolled over 66 to nothing. And I thought we were going to go and really – you know, beat them, and that's how bad it was. But you live and learn, but that's what I remember about Richard Todd. But he threw a nice long ball, and I was catching all these bombs in our minicamp practice, and I remember they pulled me out of practice just to sign me in the contract. Like, they were worried about my knee and my eye and everything else, but once I started running the routes and doing what I needed to do on the football field, they surprised me right away, and that's all she wrote after that. But I had a good relationship with Richard Todd, uh, I didn't care who was back there throwing me the ball, and I don't give them enough credit because if you if you look at uh, like highlight tape, even my girl will say, "Dang, you you always talk about Keenan O'Brien, but I'm looking at Richard Todd throwing you that football all the time, you know." <laughs> and uh, but we we and I always say, man, I don't care who is there, I don't care if it's Pat Ryan. I had one of my best years with uh, Matt Robinson, who backed Richard Todd up, but. I loved everybody. I just wanted to be successful, and it's just not one guy that makes the team. It's the team itself, and I couldn't do my job without the help of my teammates. You mentioned Matt Robinson. We'll get back to him when we get to 1978. But first, 1977, your rookie year. The team didn't do very well that season, but you did. Had a lot of big plays and your first NFL touchdown, too. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. Your first touchdown of your career came in the fourth quarter of week three against the New England Patriots. Now, again, you're somebody that's been playing organized football for a really long time, but it's a huge difference between scoring in Pop Warner, scoring in high school, scoring in college, and scoring in the NFL. When you mention all those things, because I appreciate every facet of my career, whether it be high school, college, you know, the pros, and, and I just remember being a focal point even in high school, just the, the, or, or scoring a touchdown when it, when it meant something in the last couple of minutes, maybe to win the game. I could still remember that in high school, and you can't replace that. And when you get to a level in the pros, I don't know if you can even replace that because you're you're playing in front of seven, eighty thousand people, and that's just a good feeling. Uh, and like I said, it's just not even about me. It's about the team itself. I couldn't do my job without those components. But it's certainly, it just, it's undescribable 
what it makes you feel like. I mean, you just wish you can duplicate that every time. Unfortunately, it doesn't work like that. And as many scores that I did have, I wish it was doubled. And I'm sure Jerry Rice would tell you the same thing. As good as stats he put up, he wish he could do more. You're always striving for perfection. I could have the best game of my life. Uh, and, 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 and my wife used to say, you're like, watch him come out and say the things he didn't do. And that's just the, the <laughs> athleticism or the athlete in you. You can always do better. Or you, or you think about the one you got away, the one you dropped. I could have had, you know, I remember having a great game against Miami in 86. And I think about the pass that I dropped or the, Pass that could have put me over 200 yards. And if I got the 200, I would probably won 300 yards. So there's always uh, goals that you wanted to achieve and the things that you didn't get. So I think about those things. But I'm very thankful and I've been blessed uh, to have the career that I did have. It always could be better, though. And that was the unfortunate part when you played this game. And my biggest problem was really uh, maintaining and staying healthy. Hey guys, Greg Peterson here with the Baseball Betting Podcast. As we know, the MLB season is back in our lives. It's going to be a 60-game sprint unlike anything that we've ever seen before. And I'm going to be giving you picks every single day, seven days a week with Major League Baseball. We're also going to be keeping up with the KBO as well. If you like baseball and you like being able to make some money, subscribe to the Baseball Betting Podcast with Greg Peterson on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Overtime Podcast Network. We're going to get back to 1986, believe me, because that was one of your most famous games, the game you just touched on against Miami. But we'll come back to that. Right now, let's stick with 1977, though. You had your breakout game in Week 6 against Oakland. You had four catches for 178 yards and a touchdown. You had 12 catches over the next three weeks. You had six catches for 98 yards and a loss to Baltimore Week 10. So you had a very productive rookie year. And you said that a lot of this was because you used what you called the come-to-me move, which was your ability to not only run by guys, but run routes where you could make the defender move in whatever direction you wanted them to go, and then you could change directions and go in a different way and basically completely lose them. Can you tell me a little bit about the come-to-me move and how you developed it? Yep, I had a great coach and uh, who taught me that, and his name was Dan Henney, and he uh, he just brought me to a, another level. And I could always just run by people, and sometimes I would just do that. But he taught me how to run routes where I could set up defenders, and like you just mentioned, it was like a come-to-me technique where I'm dictating to you and putting you in a position where I want you to go. And there, no matter what you did, you couldn't defend it. And it's funny, I could line up anywhere on the field, run the same pattern, but just give you a different look. And I used to love that. And there's nothing better than running, let's say, a corner route, and the guy is jumping on the post, going one direction, and you're wide open going another direction. And uh, I was very disappointed because I always wanted, I didn't want to just be looked at uh, one-dimensional as just the deep threat. I wanted to be able to run the short patterns. I wanted to be able to run patterns and, I want to be the guy that can catch the ball over the middle and go deep and do it all. And unfortunately, you get a stereotype, and they put you in different situations, certain coaches, and they can stereotype. I remember when Al Toon and myself were together, he was like the short guy, and I was the deep guy. But we both could do both, you know, and uh, and it takes a good coach to see what you can do. And one of the things I respected about Dan Henney and the coordinator we had, John Isaac at the time, 
where they would take suggestions. And I remember coming back uh, in the game, or we're getting ready to play, and I've said I could read this. Uh, you know, if they if they're running zone or man, I could I can I have something that I can do that I can counteract. You know, each coverage. And I remember they tried it in practice. Next thing I know, it was on the game plan. And then we started working it in the game. And I remember one game against Houston. I'm having this stellar game. I'm averaging over 25 yards a catch, and we're running these routes where I could read it, and then I get hurt. And I had 100 and something uh, yards, and we weren't even done with the first half. We're just getting started, and then I end up getting hurt. And that's the story of my life. But uh, I was just very fortunate. I had good coaching who taught me how to run patterns and I could use my speed and I could come out of my cuts in a certain way where some guys couldn't use their speed and come out of cuts and run routes and put that all together without losing any speed or when you make cuts because I could come out of cuts and you wouldn't know what direction I was going and this coach Dan you Henning called me the flyer and he used to say when he's even he's leaving and that's all the scouts used to say. He's even he used to call me six all the time, you know. And uh, but it was uh, just a compliment to the coach who taught me more because once you get to, you know, especially after college, and sometimes you think you know it all, but you know, a good coach will bring something else that you've never learned before, and that's what coaches do. And I can only say say that I've only had a couple of coaches that can that uh, that did that with me, and a lot of that is confidence in your ability to. And sometimes coaches, like I said, they don't see what they have and to be able to develop. And the good coaches can take uh, the qualities that a player has and develop them around a scheme of things and not try to make the scheme fit that player. You've got to take that player and what they do well and find a system that's going to fit to use their talents. And sometimes you become restricted when a person doesn't do that. And some coaches just don't have that ability. But... This guy, Dan Henney, he was the best I ever had and taught me, and uh, I just brought my game to another level where it was just very easy for me. There's part one of our in-depth discussion with Wesley Walker, one of the greatest players in New York Jets history. We're calling this Legends of Gang Green. If you remember, we did one with Bruce Harper a while back. This will be number two in that series of Legends of Gangrene, and Wesley Walker is the very first player that we've had on this show to be inducted to the New York Jets Ring of Honor, so could not be more excited. We are going to get into some explosive topics over the next bunch of weeks, but you heard some of his background there, including the fact that, and some people don't know this, but no one knew it at the time, pretty much. You heard him say it with the Jets, but he was legally blind in one eye when he was drafted by the Jets. And it's amazing to me that the team wouldn't have known that because nowadays they know literally everything you've ever done. In fact, they know what you ordered for lunch when you were in elementary school at the cafeteria. So for them to draft Wesley Walker and not know that he was blind in one eye is absolutely amazing. Another thing that's amazing, though, is the spread that's going to be at Big John's house for Super Bowl Sunday. Apparently, there's a special guest coming. Going to see if we can get to the bottom of that. John, how did your food shopping go? Yes, Scotty, I made sure to get plenty of food, including some catering from Chick-fil-A, because who doesn't love Chick-fil-A? And boy, I uh, just barely got enough, because the uh, guest of honor did come over pretty hungry. He's there already? The game isn't even till tomorrow. He must have been really hungry. Okay, you've got to spill the beans here. We know it's somebody that likes Chick-fil-A, but that doesn't really narrow it down, because everybody loves Chick-fil-A. 
Is it somebody that used to be involved with the Jets in any way? Uh, I can confirm it is somebody who used to be involved with the New York Jets. Okay, let's see. Does he have a father who is a coaching legend? Scotty, I can confirm that as a yes as well. Hmm, let's see. Is he regarded as a defensive mastermind? Scotty, uh, that answer is yes as well. Is he somebody that likes to go grab a GD snack? Scotty, you're getting very warm here. Woody Johnson's at your Super Bowl party? I'm just kidding. It's Rex, isn't it? Let's make sure we play like the New York Jets and not some slap team. That's what I want to see tomorrow. Do we understand what the I want to see tomorrow? Let's go to eat a damn snack. Of course, I had to invite our close personal friend Rex Ryan to come over and watch the Super Bowl with yours truly. That's awesome. Is he going to stick around with us for the show? Scotty, he has uh, three more parties to go to. The guy loves to snack and run. <laughs> All right, can't blame him. Talk to him about getting him on the show at some point in the near future, but enjoy that party with Rex and make sure that you have plenty of classic chicken sandwiches for him because I know he likes to down at least a dozen of those. Scotty, from the way he's looking now, there might be two dozen. <laughs> Hope you have enough, John. Hope you have enough. Because Rex may snack and run, but he likes to snack and run with only the best snacks. So you better have at least a dozen of those Chick-fil-A sandwiches. Maybe more. Who knows? Rex won't settle for second class. Thank you so much for listening this week. I hope you enjoyed the Super Bowl. Unfortunately, Wesley Walker never got to play in the Super Bowl. But we will have him back next week to get into part two of our discussion on his career with the New York Jets. John, you enjoy the Super Bowl, too. It's great to have you back, buddy. Bart Scott, I hope you enjoy the Super Bowl, too, and I know you're also looking forward to part two with Wesley Walker next week, aren't you? Can't wait! Bart, you've been killing it all football season. I'm almost afraid of what your show is going to sound like as soon as the Super Bowl is over, but hey, at least we got Maggie Gray and Chris Carlin. They don't know anything about athletics. I listened to them maybe two or three times and maybe lasted ten minutes. Better chance of happening, Mike and the Mad Dog doing a show on WFAN or the Rays, Marlins matching up in the World Series. Oh, uh, oh without a question, Rays easy. <laughs> <laughs> you have a better chance of having Rays Pirates. I'll tell you right now, though, there'll be an opening on FAN before you know it. I guarantee you. <laughs> oh, jeez. Oh. I should have oh, said it. I should have. me. <laughs> Who's leaving? Benigno? <laughs> Boomer! And they got nobody on. Where's Salakata? Maybe, maybe Steve Summers is retiring. <laughs> oh, we can make fun of that man all day. Oh, wait. Never mind. That's going to do it for us this week. My name is Scott Mason. My tag team partner is Big John Sparopoulos. John, enjoy the Super Bowl, buddy. Good to have you back. And I believe you know there's only one way that we can end this show. That's right, Scotty. A pleasure as always. Uh, just like riding a bike, I came back in and did my shtick. Rex, hope you had enough to eat. Rick, break it down. One, two, three. In the home of the Jets.